My guest today is Professor Monica Smith, who is Professor of Anthropology at the Institute of Environmental Sustainability at UCLA. She's a historian who, who utilizes archaeological data to analyze the collective effects of routine activities through the study of food, ordinary goods, and architecture. Welcome, Monica. Thanks very much. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your older papers from 2015. I don't know if it's a book uh, chapter or a paper. Um, the origins of the sustainability concept, risk perception and resource management in early urban centers. Uh, you say archaeological and historical analysis uh, indicate that a focus on sustainability is not an innate human behavioral capacity but must be specifically articulated and taught. That's quite intuitive, <laughs> Monica, in 2022, where we are today. Uh, you see, this paper examines the conditions under which ancient peoples might have developed a concept of sustainability and concludes that long-term resource management practices would not have been articulated prior to the development of the first cities starting 6,000 years ago. So, yeah, so I, I know nothing about this, Monica, but I find this really, really interesting topic. Um, so Homo sapiens, I would imagine, started off 200,000, 300,000 years ago in, in uh, African savanna, and we traveled all around the world. We settled all around the world. We create, created villages, towns, cities all around the world. But sustainability is a fairly complex question, right? I mean, you have to sort of understand the slope <laughs> of changes before you can sort of conclude something is wrong. So, so what do you find in this data? So I came at this particular concept from a couple of different directions. Uh, one of them is from this concept of sustainability that is something that we're very focused on today. Everybody loves sustainability. Students want to get credentials in sustainability. People want to get PhDs in sustainability. Companies want to hire sustainability officers because it just sounds wonderful, right? But when you peel back what sustainability is, it's a moving target. When you say that you want to be sustainable, does that mean that you want to roll the clock back to 1850 uh, before the widespread use of fossil fuels? Do you want to roll the clock back to the early 1900s? Do you want to roll the clock back to the 1980s? Like, What is the point of reference for sustainability? And once you have a sense of where you want to be, how are you going to achieve it? How are you going to measure it? What are the deliverables of sustainability? Do you allow for any growth whatsoever? Or do you try to roll everything back to 1850 and we're all going to just stay there? Do you allow for any kind of technological change that might improve some of the deleterious effects that we have today? Can you actually predict what kinds of technology could solve the problems that we are creating for ourselves? And then what's your timeline out? Is, is it you know 100 years from now, uh, 400 years from now, 10,000 years from now, the way the long now people are thinking about it? Um, what exactly are you thinking about with sustainability? So once you look under the hood of sustainability, it's very complicated. And there are many equally good arguments about what the targets should be and how we get there. So that was one aspect that I had in mind when I wrote this paper. The other aspect was about urbanism, because we know that we are an increasingly 
urban global society. And yet there are many problems with urbanism. Uh, cities are crowded, they're expensive, they're polluted, and yet we are all living in them. And they are not going away. They are not the natural habitat of our species. Human beings did perfectly fine for, as you say, over 200,000 years without any urbanism. So if urbanism is such a nuisance, maybe there is something that it actually solves that we hadn't thought about before. So that was the other aspect of this paper, that maybe there is something about urbanism that has this kind of kernel of sustainability that was hiding in plain sight this whole time. Mm. Yeah, I, I love this idea. So I consider myself a city person, Monica, and uh, it's sort of curious that, you know, as I came to Chicago from, from India, and then I spent some time in Atlanta, Dallas, San Francisco. Now, now I live in a small city in Connecticut with 50,000 50, population. Uh, but, um, but I like cities <laughs> for, for, for whatever reason. So, so I wonder, as you say here, uh, cities is sort of a recent invention, isn't it? I mean, we've been here at least a million years, you know, homo sapiens, generally speaking. But you say here, uh, cities are like a 6,000 year phenomenon, which is very, very recent, right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of times in archaeology or you might be watching a program and, and you want to find out like, oh, what is the first city um, or what is the earliest city or what is the oldest city? Actually, that's changing all the time because there are many cities, the origins of which we are only now starting to you know, get to get to the bottom of. So um, if you take, for example, a city like Harappa, one of the ancient Indus cities, and, you know, the, the site of Harappa had been investigated for nearly 100 years, and it was only in the last 20 years or so that a team of researchers, Pakistani researchers and people from the University of Madison, Wisconsin, um, actually were able to get all the way through to find, you know, the, the mm -hmm. earliest deposits. Think about a place like Manhattan or a place like Los Angeles or Chicago, Paris, Cairo, any city in the world. Its origins were quite small and they grew and grew and grew outwards. If you were to take a deep probe, you would have to probe over and over and over again to find that little village buried under those deposits. That's why archaeologists are continually coming up with ideas of, you know, now we have data that's earlier than the earliest cities. Uh, now we have gone all the way through this giant Mesopotamian tell, and we have, you know, some very, very early basketry or early pottery or something like that. So we may not know what was really the first city. We're still looking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So... So, so talk a little bit about the sort of a sustainability concept. Um, so you say um, you say that it's really difficult to teach. <laughs> well, it has to be taught. It's not really in it, in, in our psyche, so to speak, sustainability. Because I would imagine homo sapiens, humans, have fairly tactical objective functions. Uh, I hate to make it... Um, class, but um, sex, food, food recently replaced by money, 
but it has a, a few attributes in them. And we're not really thinking long term, are we? <laughs> from a sustainability perspective. You know, neither from an economic nor from a philosophical perspective is it worthwhile for most people to think about a far distant future. Because, you know, in, in the oldest days of our hunting and gathering ancestors, would you come home every day from a hunt? It was not guaranteed. Even early farmers, you know, you could wake up in the morning and feel perfectly fine and you would get a fever and die by evening. So the idea of spending a lot of time worried about the distant future made no sense. You could worry about today, tomorrow. You could worry about your harvest lasting until the next planting season. Uh, you could worry about your children growing up to have grandchildren. But for the most part, there was not much benefit in thinking very abstractly beyond that. And philosophers also have been telling us, you know, don't worry about that which is uncontrollable, seek the action that you can do today. Mm. So both economically and philosophically, people are not conditioned to find a good return on investment in thinking about something that they will never see. It's beyond their lifetime. Even the most optimistic person, why plan for more than 100 years from now? You'll never see it. Yeah, so that's that's very rational in many ways, right? So if you're trying to sort of maximize utility within your horizons, then it is not that interesting. But then we have people, you know, caring for kids. We have grandmothers caring for their grandkids. We have great grandmothers caring for their <laughs> great grandkids, or whatever that, uh, whatever they are called. So, so there is a innate sort of um, intention. Well, uh, this might be programmatic in the sense that perhaps it's a desire to spread your genes, which is also sort of a, a mechanical thing. Um, but I think humans have been sort of thinking generation-wide concepts, right, for a while? Yes, fortunately, because there are visionaries <laughs> who have made something last. So anybody who makes a monument, anybody who puts up a gravestone, anybody who creates a building is projecting that forward. Architects don't build buildings to be disposable. They build them because they want to have a lasting kind of impact. And fortunately, also, we have people who can sometimes exercise amazing judgment and presence of mind to secure the future. So, for example, all of the people who put together the New York City watershed more than 100 years ago to preserve the water that you know, we can now enjoy today. Any city that has a watershed is a management exercise, the credit for which goes to sometimes very famous people like Mulholland in Los Angeles, but m most of the time to bureaucrats who faithfully execute a duty to the future. So that is the great and wonderful exception to people not being able to think about the future. There are these crystalline moments of opportunity when people do enact 
a plan that can last. Yeah, so you say here in this paper, pre-modern cities provided the first expression of large population sizes in which there were niches of economic and social mutualism. Yet individuals and households persisted in age-old approaches to provisioning by opportunistically using urban networks rather than focusing on collective future. Um, so, so I want to connect this with some of your other work, um, which is, it seems to, uh, I, mean, I don't understand this, Monica, at all, but so I, it seems to me that you argue that cities live even if countries die. And that is a very sort of interesting thing to think about, right? It is. Cities are paradoxically quite resilient places. Let's take an example uh, like New Orleans. Uh, you know, we know that, that Katrina had a terrible impact on New Orleans. And yet what happened at the, at the end? It, there were some demographic shifts, to be sure. Um, there were some ethnic shifts, different groups of people moving in and out. But can you go to New Orleans today and experience the vibrancy of place? Absolutely. If you're a business person, can you go do business in the port of, of New Orleans? Absolutely. The amazing thing about New Orleans is not that it bounced back from Katrina, but that it has bounced back from hurricanes for all of its existence. Right. New Orleans really ought not to exist, but <laughs> it comes back. And, you know, when we look at the resilience of cities that we might think of archaeologically, like Rome, Rome was a muddy, messy place along the Tiber River. It flooded all the time. Archaeological research that's finally done those deep probes in Rome have found that it was really kind of a miserable little place. But it was, you know, just at the right spot for crossing. So people put up with the continual floods until there were enough people to put together some drainage proposals and then build things up on the banks of the Tiber so that at least some people could be wealthy enough to be above the flood. And it just went on and on and on. And even after you had invasions and you had plagues, I mean, we think that the coronavirus is bad. The Antonine Plague went on for more than 20 years. So even with all of that, Rome went on and on. It took a setback after the fall of the Roman Empire. And then it came back during the medieval period. It came back in the modern period. And it's still very much with us. That is really the story of cities. You can take almost any city that's not as famous as New Orleans or Rome. And it has gone through periods of fluctuating prosperity and environmental degradation and all kinds of challenges, and yet still there. So what's the explanation? Are cities like COVID um, who keeps mutating and, and, uh, and surviving? I mean, are cities mutating? Is that the way that they're surviving? Perhaps they're metastasizing. Um, you know, if you think about, <laughs> if you think about you know, many regions of the world, uh, cities that that had been distinct entities along a river are now sort of growing into these big conurbations. Um, it's happening on the east coast of the U.S. Um, it's it's happening in Europe along the Rhine. Um, this is the process of urban growth 
that really validates cities as attractive, viable options, despite all of the challenges. And when you think about what cities offer that small towns don't, or that maybe, you know, you mentioned that you're in a small city of 50,000, and that is a kind of an interesting size, isn't it? Because it's big enough to have certain kinds of things, but not quite large enough to sustain some of the things that you would get in Chicago or Paris or Tokyo, London, Accra, Lagos, you know, any place. So this sense of opportunity that cities provide is something that I think has drawn people in since the very beginning. And people had a, an experience of gatherings in the pre-urban period, maybe a fair, maybe a festival. But the idea was that after that, you were supposed to go home. And then once or twice or dozens of times in different places, there were a few people who just didn't go home after the festival. Mm. And they stayed and more people stayed with them. And then it became a trading spot. And then somebody put up some uh, you know, religious temple icons. And then some ruler came and said, oh, here's a population that I can control. And there you go. There's your, there's your urban beginning. Yeah, they had too much alcohol and they stayed um, and then cities formed. So that's, that's an interesting concept. Um, the, this idea of sustainability again. So when I talk to young people, they appear to be very well tuned to this idea. So we, you know, we talked about the subjective function question, which is, do people really think about 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years? Most people don't, but it appears that the younger generation are much better tuned to that than us. Do, would you agree with that or what yes, do you think about that? Absolutely. I agree and I'm grateful um, because one of the things that they're inheriting is the outcome of poor decision making um, and lack of, of thoughtfulness. If you think about things like um, you know, pesticides and chemicals and the things that we're talking about is forever chemicals that are, you know, increasingly uh, permeating our atmosphere, microplastics, things that are now recognized to be detrimental in part because we can measure things much better than we had before. Prior to about 150 years ago, there were very few good longitudinal measurements of temperature, of you know, any kind of pollution, of any kind of, uh, you know, smoke deposits over the planet. So we've become much better at measuring. And when you measure something, then by quantifying it, you can also start to engage with actuarial sciences. You can engage with risk and probability. So this is really where mathematicians become essential because they're able to take what we can measure in so many different parts of the world and then model for us the global impact. And thank goodness for the young people who are, first of all, recognizing that now we can model the global impact, but even better, maybe we can change it for the better. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's in this paper, Monica, or some other paper, you, you talk about sort of the longitudinal measurements being critical, right? So we have to be in a position to sort of look at the trends, look at the slope of trends. Uh, 
only then we can really conclude things are changing for the better or, or for the worse. So I would imagine for 6,000 years, maybe just last 200 years, we have had that, that option, right, to really measure things. Yes, although archaeologists give us a number of proxy measurements and geologists as well. So, for example, this is why the ice cores in the Arctic are so important, because you can do measurements of, of long term, you know, thousands of years of ice core data and everything that's swirling around the planet, you know, whether it's uh, you know, pollens or isotopes or anything is is getting deposited in those ice cores. And then uh, you can look at, for example, global methane deposits for the last four or 5,000 years that increase with the development of agriculture. And so you have a record in those Arctic ice cores of things that have been going on globally and give us a sense of human environmental dynamics over the long term. Another way that archaeologists do that is through dendrochronology. And we've got these long sequences of the, you know, the tree ring cores that are the things that enable us to say that the American Southwest has had about a 700-year drought cycle. So there's where your archaeologists, your climate scientists, you know, geologists are all working together to say like, okay, really good weather records are only about 100 years old or 200 years old. How can we stretch that back to look at the entire realm of human environmental dynamics? Yeah, there's always a little bit of a danger looking into historical data. Uh, we know that the magnetic poles of the Earth is switching. Um, we know that, um, you know, so, so the Atlantic, um, um, I don't know what it's called, the, the hot water that comes <laughs> into the Atlantic, into Europe, it's sort of stop, stopping. So we have many tactical, very tactical short-term things happening on top of everything else, right? So, so I wondered, you know, if you, so from an archaeology perspective, we, we, we have seen a lot of cities that sort of suddenly died and then everybody left, right? So we must have had these types of things happening in the, in the past, I would imagine. Yes, here's where uh, an ability to think about archaeological chronology may be helpful, however, because when archaeologists dig, you know, we don't take a radiocarbon date of absolutely every object that we find. We might find, you know, 10,000 objects, 100,000 potsherds. And radiocarbon dates are something that we might submit maybe 20 to a laboratory, 15 or 20 or 25 or something like that. And then that gives us a sense of what looks like a staggering change from one era to the next. So for archaeologists, a hundred-year time period or a hundred-year phase is is considered pretty good. You know, we we rarely ever get a year-by-year year phasing. Yeah. The result of that collapse of chronology means that things can appear to be very sudden, like a kind of punctuated equilibrium or a punctuated evolution. But in the real time of lived experience, it might have been three or four generations. So <laughs> something looks to us like a sudden collapse may actually be a kind of a slow dissipation over periods of time that are too compressed for archaeologists to really capture. Hmm. So, so 
three or four generations. So in the in the historical sense, that's maybe 100, 150 years, perhaps. And so, so, so you would say that most of sort of the sudden change, quote unquote, that we see in the archaeological data is really 100 years, 150 years, um, which is quite quite u- quite useful notion in the sense that if we were to bring technology to this situation that we are in today, uh, most believe we're going to perish in 20, 30 years. We still have, maybe we have 100 years to really sort of correct it, would you say? I mean, I'm talking about the environmental catastrophe that we are facing. I, I'm not sure we have 100 years. I think we have today. We better do something today. And every every small thing we do today will have a hundred year incremental impact. Right, right. So, so I want to go into another paper that you have, uh, just really fascinating. So, linear statecraft along the Nile. This twenty twenty paper. Landscapes and the political phenomenology of ancient Egypt. You say states in archaeological and historical parlance generally are large and dynamic entities with continually fluctuating borders and boundaries across large land masses. States also are characterized by multiple nodes of settlement and multiple regions of resource availability within those large land masses, including agricultural, agricultural fields, animal pastures, raw materials, and labor power. The Northeastern African continent, however, you say provides a rather different spatial configuration for states, prerequisites for uh, of agricultural intensification, social integration. So, so I, I want to really understand this, Monica. So, so if you look at historical data from all sorts of different areas, we have some hypothesis, some expectations. But you're arguing here that Northeastern African continent, so Egypt specifically, seems to look quite different. It does. And uh, I don't know if you've been to Egypt, but it has this still to this day, even with the Aswan Dam that provides a steady source of water uh, and you know less fluctuation than ancient Egyptians would have experienced, still today you can stand with one foot in the vibrant green fields of you know wheat and one foot in the desert i mean that the delineation is mm-hmm. that stark and the reason that i wrote this paper was by invitation so i'm not an egyptologist um, by by training i work mostly in the indian subcontinent i've also worked in the roman world um, but i was invited to make a contribution to this special issue that had uh, people who were coming from different parts of the world And it struck me that this was an opportunity to think not necessarily about the political formation of the Egyptian state, because so many people have written about all the different things that happened there, but about the experience of the state, which most of the time when we talk about ancient nations, uh, we talk about them in a kind of clinical perspective. We we talk about the, the rise of civilization or this queen or that king and this bureaucracy. And then we have some texts that can also be very specific about, you know, this many administrators went out to collect this much tax and then this bureaucracy happened and then they minted these coins and so on. And it's all very, you know, abstract. 
but I wanted to bring a human perspective to it. So what did it feel like, not for the king or the queen who was sailing the magnificent barge down the Nile, but for you know the donkey herder or the person mm. working in the agricultural field? Um, what was it like to be told and to experience that now they were not just a member of some little village, but they were part of the Egyptian state. And then what were all the other little infilling moments that must have come along with that? The idea of if you were going to the temple, um, that was the king's temple. Uh, what was the king? Oh, the king was telling you what to do. Oh, what is that thing? It is the pyramid. What are you building? We were building the pyramid. There's something about the state that implicates its inhabitants, not just once a year at tax time, but every single day and every festival or every time there's a flag or an anthem. The state is a very powerful construct in our own experience. And I think that the state has been powerful from the beginning, not just because kings hit other people over the head, but because there really is a sense of community that gets politically interwoven. So that's why I wrote that paper. Yeah, so, so I think we're going to um, get into the mathematics of this a little bit in terms of um, in terms of site size hierarchies in your recent papers. But um, it's um, it's a very interesting thing, right? So, so going back to our discussion of cities and states, is there some sort of programmatic way? I don't know how, how to best ask this, but there's some sort of programmatic way that humans uh, sort of gravitate toward formation of some community and then cities and 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 states. Um, do we have sort of a mathematical formulation of that in some way? People are very interested in that concept, yeah. actually. I mean, there are a number of groups um, that have become organized over the past decade or so to look at exactly that kind of question. Um, so there's a group at the University of Chicago. Um, there's a group at Arizona State University. There's a group at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and they're trying to go through uh, site reports and you know, trying to mathematically model you know, when, when do cities have that tipping point into state formation or you know, how how many bushels of grain productivity per hectare is required? I mean, they're doing all kinds of really interesting <laughs> things with the, with the math. Um, you know, again, subject to the caveat that we generally excavate only a small portion of an ancient settlement, and from that we extrapolate. So they are trying to, to find out if there is a kind of mathematical calculation that can be made. Um, there's another colleague of mine, Roland Fletcher, who wrote about the, you know, the limits of settlement dynamics many years ago, again, kind of a mathematical approach to, to urban life. So I think we need all those people. We need the very quantitative people to try to model these things. And then we need the historian, philosophers, textual scholars, and people to think about what it means on the ground. Because of course, people don't live in a mathematically ordained universe. They live in a household. They have a community. What do you mean? No, just kidding. <laughs> so, 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 um, I remember you talking about this in in the paper. I think um, so. There's sort of island 
construct here, right? So if you're an island, you, you have some expectations from that island because they're sort of constrained. In Egypt, I think you're also constrained, right, in some sense. So it looks more like an island. Is that the idea? Yes. Egypt is a great test case because it's not a place where a ruler could easily expand their territory except along the Nile. Because if, for example, you look at the beginnings of urbanism and the beginnings of complex communities in Mesoamerica, you know, so places like Mexico and Central America and Andes, in China, in the Indian subcontinent, in Mesopotamia, in the Mediterranean, a ruler could achieve a larger state by going and grabbing another chunk of territory, mm. usually already occupied by somebody else, but, you know, co-opting a, a leader from a different place and, and making- We are doing that in 2022, Monica. I just want to make sure people understand this. In 2022, we are doing it. So. Uh, exactly, exactly. It is a, it is a long running uh, political <laughs> strategy. Yes, yes. It has its roots in the deep past. Right. But in Egypt, that's not really, again, return on investment of expansion in Egypt is not, not very high because, as I said, you can stand with one foot in the green and one foot in the desert. To find another patch of green, you're going to have to cross the desert for many hundreds of kilometers. There is mm. just no place to go. So the only place that the Egyptian state could expand was either down into what, you know, what they called Nubia, what we call the Sudan, um, or up into the area of the Mediterranean. There was just no other place to go. Yeah. So it's a it's almost like a, a laboratory test case of how you create statecraft when you cannot physically add and subtract adjacent territory. Have you found similar phenomena in other parts of the world, like in China uh, or India or other places? Uh, or, or Egypt is sort of unique in this construct? I think Egypt is at the extreme end of variable environmental parameters. Hmm. So that's what makes it an interesting test case because it's not unique. There's no human society that's really unique. But it is distinctive because in looking at Egypt, you can filter out some of the complexities that you get when you talk about, you know, a place like China, for example, which has had so many layered complex groupings and expansions, contractions, you know, different material culture, different ethnic groups, different cultural groups that form cities over and over again in slightly different areas of the landscape. That's not really possible in Egypt because the parameters of possibility are restricted. Mm. Yeah, this is beautiful research. I mean, it has a lot of policy implications too. If you, I mean, if you believe humans are largely the same, we can look back into history and we can sort of learn from that history and make ourselves better. Not that our politicians have any interest in that, so it's not going to happen. Uh, but at least from a scientific perspective, I think it's useful, right? I wish that could be true. I think that phrase, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. I think we're doomed to repeat it anyway. 
That's uh, <laughs> it's programmatic. Humans are sort of automatons with a with a basic program in them. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting thing. You know, I've been arguing that is the case, which is we don't really learn from our mistakes at all. We actually keep repeating them. And that is an amazing thing, you know, even artificial intelligence robots, we program them to learn from their mistakes. But apparently God didn't program humans <laughs> that way for whatever reasons, because we don't we seem to repeat the same mistakes over and over again, right? Yes, because our intelligence is not artificial. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I just want to finish up on this paper. It says the constraints of a viable landmass surrounded by an uninhabitable desert uh, parallel the condition of experienced island states in every the productive application of island. Um, so I remember reading something um, in your in your work about Indonesia. Indonesia is I don't know seventeen hundred different islands, um, and we. What you're saying is that we can actually sort of draw some parallels between island states and and nations that are sort of constrained uh, by whatever whatever reasons, right? I mean, we see the same behavior patterns. Is that the way to think about it? Yes, and in fact, you know, we could think about islands not not only as geographic entities. Um, but as a kind of state of mind, actually. Um, and there's some wonderful island poetry and, you know, island philosophy. And you think about, uh, you know, why people go to islands and, you know, what it, what it means to be isolated, um, which is all from the same uh, you know, root concept. But when you have a neighborhood in a city, that's almost like an island in some ways. You can travel to other parts of the city, uh, but it's, the place that sustains you. Your neighborhood is the place that sustains you. It's the place you know. It's the place you understand the particular human tidal activity that happens in your neighborhood. And so we think of, of places like Indonesia as being a nation of islands because it looks so obvious that they are physically separated and yet somehow they stay together as a state. If we took that same concept and portaged it to something that looks like a continental landmass, but is equally fragmented, then we recognize that we have to work a little harder to make the connection. Yeah, I was, I was thinking when I was reading your paper, Monica, that I lived in an island in South India, mountains on the east and sea on the west, mm. and um, not much traffic <laughs> going in one direction or the other. And it has a unique culture, it has a unique, you know, sort of everything, which is not a very good thing, I would argue. <laughs> um, so so we have these islands all around the world that, mm -hmm. that, you know, sort of look inward um, in many ways, and I'm not sure in the in the modern context that's a good thing or not. 
But the recognition of that variability has also been part of the historical record. So you might be familiar with the Tamil Sangam poetry from third, second centuries BC. And in that poetry, there's description of cities, you know, that shine like a jewel, but there's also descriptions of the five different environmental zones and how different they are. And, you know, this acute awareness of how environments are different and they produce different kinds of people and they have different kinds of economic value, different kinds of social value. So uh, luckily we do have the ability to recognize that variability is not bad. It can be mutually complementary and mutually supportive. So I want to take a detour, Monica, if you don't mind. So, so I look at the US we have the East Coast, Washington, Boston corridor, so to speak. We have the West Coast, Oregon, California <laughs> corridor. Uh, we have the Midwest, we have the Southeast. Um, it, they all seem like diff almost different countries in some ways. Um, so what's the policy implication of your work for the US? that every part is dependent on the other part for something. People on the East Coast depend on Silicon Valley. Um, people in the South depend on the North for wheat. Uh, you know, there are so many things that we are connected by. The similarities, I would think and would hope, would outweigh the differences because when you have a kind of kaleidoscopic input the way that you have through our different regions in the United States, or if you think about the kaleidoscopic input of an ancient city, which is what made cities successful, cities are not just about one kind of product. They are places where people find a variety of entertainment, of education, of employment, and it's that kind of mutually constituted network that makes places thrive. And that is what has made the US thrive as an economic entity. Um, it's what enables places like India and China to thrive as economic entities. So again, I think our commonalities or our mutual linkages are greater than, than the islands. Yeah, remember you're talking about cities don't stand by themselves. Cities are sort of a network of cities in most countries. And so, so as you were saying, um, it is really about a network, isn't it? I mean, each mm -hmm. city could have a bit of a different culture, different perspectives, different ideas, but it's ultimately the network that succeeds, seems to me. Yes, and I think you said it yourself about being you know, attracted to cities. Most of the time when people leave a city, they go to another city. And we actually saw this during the coronavirus period because um, at the beginning, there was a sense that cities were going to be depopulated and the world was not going to be an urban world anymore and so on. And, and people would ask me about this and I would say, just wait. They'll, they'll come back. And that's exactly what happened. There were a few people who did trickle out into the countryside. Most of them have now become a bit bored and they're trying to get back to the urban centers that they came from. And if a, a person is educated in an urban center, they're going to be 
going to another urban center to live and work and invest and be a part of, of a community. That's why the world is becoming more urbanized because once people go urban, whether they are, you know, a small migrant community or, you know, entire groups or high ranking people or low ranking people, once people come into cities, they become urban people. And they don't leave. It's like a roach motel. You, you check in, you never leave. <laughs> Much better than that. But, you know, it's also about perception that, that people come to cities because they believe life will be better, even if it is objectively worse. We know that there are many people who migrate um, internationally and what they find in their new homes in cities can sometimes be much worse than what they left. But they continue to act as though the urban life can be better than what they left behind. That's why people don't really go back. It's not the objective reality that life in cities is great for everybody. It's often quite bad for many people. But the perception is that it's better than going back. Yeah, it's a bit of a personality requirement. It seems to be, you know, the younger crowd uh, seems to have that personality more than the older crowd. And so my sense is that we're going to have higher and higher level of urbanization as we as we go forward, because I look at my daughter and I, I can see these kids are never going to live in the suburbs, never, <laughs> uh, you know. And, and that's what I see, you know, sort of the, the, the younger crowd. They don't really have a desire to be away from a city. Mm. And just think of what a city offers to people free, right? So people love information. Nowadays, you can get lots of information free on, on the Internet. But before the Internet, the only way to get lots of information free was to go and be in a city. You could sit on the street corner. You could be, you know, a... a a petty vendor, you could be somebody who was itinerant selling, you know, food from a basket, you could work in a shop, and you would just learn so much about people and you would hear what was going on and you would become knowledgeable. You know, yeah. if you need directions, you can ask somebody who doesn't look very wealthy because chances are they are a fount of information, even if they are not a fount of money. And that ability to be entertained for free, to get educated on life skills for free is also something that drew people into ancient cities, just like it draws people into modern cities. Yeah, there's a city Google that's free. And um, you have to be in the city to use that Google. That's that's the issue. <laughs> uh, there's a culture. Would you say there's a cultural difference between the city folks and the non-city folks? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, I, I didn't realize, you know, people, people study things that they enjoy themselves, right? So everybody who studies cities is really very much an, an urbanite. I didn't realize that I was an urbanite uh, until I moved from Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I had been doing my PhD, to Manhattan. And all of a sudden, I felt like, ah, even though I had never been to Manhattan before, it felt like a kind of home. Ann Arbor's not too bad. Ann Arbor's a good town, too. Ann Arbor is a wonderful town, but it's it's pretty small. Um, and you tend to meet people that you know wherever you go. 
um, you know, it's it's about that size of of place, um, which can be very be very nice. But it's it's not like L.A. where you know I was from originally, or from New York, or you know other parts of the world. And but, but running so, into running into a PhD at Ann Arbor is a higher probability than running into a PhD at um, at Los Angeles or or uh, New York in general. That's true. I think Ann Arbor has the highest uh, PhDs per capita of of any place in America, and also a wonderful you know large alumni population. So everywhere in the world you go, you can see somebody wearing a Michigan shirt. Go blue. <laughs> Good, good, uh, good football team, um, and that you know that helps. So, so I want to finish up with your recent paper, the process of complex societies, dynamic models beyond site size hierarchies. So you say the site size hierarchy concept enables researchers to transform archaeological survey data into political classifications. Yet everything about a site size rubric, you say, is worth rethinking for the reliability of surface survey data to the recognition of the sites of all sizes act anomalously within territorial configuration. So um, the little I understand about this, uh, Monica, I, I'm thinking, so there's some sort of correlation between sort of the size of the, of the site and sort of the city taking off. Is that the way to... Visualize this? It's somewhat like that. Um, basically, archaeologists are famous for digging, but that is not the only thing that we do because an excavation is very costly and time consuming, and it usually covers only a very small portion of a site. So um, the average living room in you know an American household, um, it would take you about 20 people about a month to dig through that carefully. So you can imagine that trying to understand a whole ancient city will never happen through excavation, or mm. trying to understand a landscape will never happen through excavation. So archaeologists about 50 years ago developed the concept of systematic survey, and many archaeological remains are still visible on the surface, you know, broken fragments of pottery or building materials, even if the site has been abandoned and you don't have any uh, you know, physical standing remains. Archaeological elements always leave a trace. And so the idea was to you know, figure out how big these spreads of ancient artifacts are and then map them across a landscape and say that if you had sites of different sizes and you had enough different sizes to you know, create not just a landscape of villages, um, but one where you had villages, towns, and cities in a kind of nice, you know, pyramidal scheme, then you could affirm that you had an ancient state. Sort of a model, a sort of a heuristic model that you can create, yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's a little bit like those quantitative models that we were talking about a little bit earlier. The idea that if you can just measure everything, that somehow you can create an algorithm that will predict how something worked in the past. And this paper suggests that a nice, neat pyramidal scheme for understanding ancient cities and states is insufficient to capture the variability that one sees on the ground and also the agency of people to create political landscapes, not according to a formula, but 
according to a very diverse set of experiences in which you get things like feedback loops and you know like cellular automata where in the paper i talk about cellular automata as a way of addressing the underlying variabilities that mean that a simple cause and effect is rarely accurate. So here's an example. In a forest fire, for example, there are many things that condition the way in which a fire spreads. There's terrain, there's vegetation, there's humidity, there's wind. And the result of that is it's extremely difficult to predict exactly how a forest fire will spread. Hmm. Every year we have forest fires, and every year the fire captains are saying, we don't exactly know where the fire is going to go. Because there are so many variables, and these variables also interact with one another in ways that, even with very powerful mathematics, cannot be predicted. It's a butterfly effect, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and human behavior is even more unpredictable than that, because Ultimately, a forest fire or some other physical process has quantifiable elements that are non-novel. But humans can always come up with a crazy idea that changes the equation. Do you find, so I know that you have looked at a lot of different sets of data. Do you find any patterns in this data? You say here, uh, complex societies, chiefdoms, and states emerge through a materialized energies of constituent parts, cities, towns, resource zones, fortifications, frontiers, and so on, that ebb and flow through connections of trade, warfare, alliances, and migration, characterized by multiple and overlapping dynamisms. Uh, it seems like uh, it's clearly a nonlinear system. But do you find any patterns in, you know, different sets of data that we can sort of, you know, suppose we simulate something with initial conditions? Could we, could we predict what could happen? Maybe, but the conditions that seem universal are relatively banal. Like you can't have cities without agriculture because farmers need to support all the people in the city who are not themselves farmers. That's a pretty basic observation that is true, but not particularly interesting. It does not explain New Orleans. It does not explain Rome. You know, it, it does not explain uh, Great Zimbabwe. So there's there's more to it than that. And and that's why I think this this sense of individual agency, phenomenology, the kind of the spark of the collective, sometimes for positive intent, sometimes for negative outcomes. You know, the wisdom of the crowd is not always positive. Um, <laughs> such yeah. that every individual case is distinctive, maybe not unique, but distinctive. That's why it's really great to be in a room full of archeologists and somebody's talking about China and somebody's talking about Europe and somebody's talking about the Andes and somebody's talking about you know, Mesoamerica, the Maya, um, that, that's really amazing to, mm -hmm. to think about the commonalities of people have produced some commonalities of urbanism and yet 
when you go to London, Paris, Rome, Cape Town, Tokyo, Sydney, you know that there is something different about that place. Mm. That's definitely true, yeah. So the, so the outcomes are not necessarily predictable based on heuristics, because you argue, if I understand this correctly, Monica, you argue that there are a lot of uncertainties in the system. Uh, sometimes it may be a singular person, a singular leader that emerges from those uncertainties that drives the city or drives the country. Um, I mean, more recently we have seen uh, such uncertainties even in developed countries like the United States. So it, it just one person could turn things in the wrong direction or the right direction. And when you measure the outcomes, we can really look at uh, look at it as programmatic, I think, right? That's what you're saying? Yes, this is why mayors are very important. Uh, you know, this is why community leaders are very important. Um, this is why faith communities are important. This is why educational institutions are important, because they are places from which dialogues and, and actions can occur on a local level that then give people a sense of reassurance that they are in a place that's not just an island, but a place that has potentially boats and bridges to others. Yeah, I, I see, you know, from a mathematical perspective, I see some sort of a robustness of society. So if you if you can measure a robustness of society, then you have a better prediction of outcomes of that society. But there's a lot of uncertainty, then you can't really predict, right? So, so going back to your work in, um, you know, in Egypt and India and elsewhere, do you see anywhere that, you know, things are sort of more robust from a predictability perspective, that things things sort of progress the way that you expected things to progress? Um, I don't know if I'm asking this question correctly. Well, one way that a person can see when things went well for unexpectedly long periods of time, um, you know, the Roman Empire is a good example of non-linear expansions because the Roman Empire did not expand by Rome and, you know, gradually going out like an ink blot all over the Mediterranean. Uh, the Romans expanded strategically to places like Spain first for the mineral wealth that was there and then to North Africa for the agricultural wealth. And so they were very good in hindsight, we don't know exactly how it went on the ground, but in hindsight, they were very good at picking up disparate pieces of connectivity mm. and bringing it together into a system that could be sustained over generations. And there are other examples of that too, but the Romans are particularly well documented um, as a way of of longitudinal continuities. And I would imagine the modern times of British, but could argue, were pretty good at that too, right? I mean, the, the British certainly thought so, and they used the Romans as a model. I mean, there's a there's a lot about how classical education and the British Empire reinforced each other in ways that probably also 
you know, filter out what might have been less successful of the Roman experience. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Monica. Thanks so much for spending time with me. It's been lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you.